hospital was busy and COVID made it busier and COVID uh, made it very stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, so it did take a physical and an emotional toll on, on me and, and really on our whole physician group. Um, we had a couple of times where we had a physician who was out sick with COVID mm-hmm. and uh, at least one of them we thought had, had gotten it while he was at work. Um, and so then we had to, we had to scramble and come in and work extra on top of what our usual shifts per month were. So, so the days were long and stressful. And like we talked about that, it was very emotional and it was, uh, hard because of the loss. It was hard because of the sense of not knowing exactly whether you were doing the right thing, or if there was something that you should be doing or something you were doing that you shouldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, and then watching the families deal with the stress of having a, a loved one sick, all of that, I think, uh, was part of, of that sense of burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it's happening now. Again, part, part of it also is that there are no local intensive care unit beds in Central Arkansas. So. Everybody remembers those tense months throughout the first and second surges of the COVID-19 pandemic. If you turned on the news on any given day, it was probable that you would find yourself watching a daily update on COVID statistics in your state, or perhaps a package focusing on the day-to-day lives of frontline workers. Personally, I remember turning on NBC Nightly News and watching an interview with a nurse in Atlanta, Georgia, who was giving insight into her long, stressful, heavy work days. And although these news segments gave little windows into the lives of physicians, nurses, hospitalists, and other frontline workers, it's hard to imagine what those days truly looked like for them without having a personal connection. This is why I chose to sit down with Dr. Greg Kendrick for this second episode. Dr. Kendrick is a close family friend of mine. He attended medical school and residency with my dad, where they became the very best of friends, extremely hard workers, and supportive colleagues. Dr. Kendrick earned his undergraduate degree from Washita Baptist University, He attended the University of Arkansas Medical School and then spent several years in residency at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Kendrick has spent the entirety of the pandemic caring for COVID positive patients in what one might call the COVID unit of the hospital where he works. In this episode, he gives us an extensive amount of insight into what his days looked like early on in the pandemic as well as what they are currently looking like as the southern region of the U.S. experiences its third surge of COVID cases. Dr. Kendrick and his family also served as a source of community and support from afar when we lost my grandmother to COVID-19. He not only supported and empathized with our family in grief, but was there to consult with my dad as he made difficult medical decisions on behalf of my grandma as her condition worsened. Sitting down with Dr. Kendrick gave me the opportunity to ask several specific questions that help us paint a picture of what really goes on behind the hospital walls of a COVID unit. I'm Hannah Horton, and this is Perusing the Pandemic, Episode 2, COVID Up Close. Hi, Dr. Kendrick. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and let you introduce yourself, and then we can move on with our questions. 
Okay, thank you, Hannah. Thanks for having me. I'm Greg Kendrick, and I'm an internal medicine board certified physician, and I practice in Conway, Arkansas, uh, at Conway Regional, uh, which is uh, a community-based hospital here. And I'm currently the head of our hospitalist program and also the director, program director for our internal medicine residency program. Do you remember the exact moment or even the general time frame that you began hearing about COVID-19? I do. I remember that it was over Christmas break uh, in 2019, the very end of 2019. And I remember hearing reports of Wuhan uh, being in a crisis and that something clearly was going on there and thinking, wow, that's a lot of people. Uh, I don't know how that's going to work out because you know, just, uh, I guess the first thought I had was thinking back to when we had heard about SARS and yeah. knew that that was a thing, but then it kind of went away without ever causing us any, any second thought really, uh, in the U S. So that, that's the first I remember of it. What did it look like? So once COVID started hitting the U.S., what did it look like for the hospital that you work at, um, so Conway Regional, to transition into the pandemic? Yeah, so, uh, you know, there was a three-month span between it hitting our hospital in the middle of March of 2020 and when I was telling you I had first heard of it. And it seems that we all just kind of watched happily from a distance and didn't really seem to think it would ever affect us. So I remember on, I believe it was March 13th in 2020, when we had our first case in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And it was the aha moment where we thought, oh, we better do something to get ready for this. So we, we all met in emergency and that was the administration the infectious disease specialist at our hospital, and then also uh, nursing leadership um, on, okay, what are we going to do? And immediately we started making decisions that we had never made before. I mean, we shut down the, the West entrance uh, lobby to our hospital and decided to use it as a COVID testing area. And it's still shut down. That entrance is still shut down. So a year and a half later, um, and then we had to start figuring out things like, where are we going to put patients when they arrive and who is going to take care of them? And are we going to let the staff that's taking care of those patients take care of other patients or are they only going to take care of COVID patients? Um, so we, we started that day and made some big decisions. And I think all of us thought at the time, you know, we need to prepare. This is probably going to last for, for about three months and then, then we'll be through the, the worst of it and we can move on. We, we actually, after that, we met daily uh, in a big circle and in a boardroom and everybody went around, you know, giving their, their opinion about their area of expertise. And we basically were very flexible in what we were doing and, and we, we made decisions to change what we were doing from day to day. So when you guys started thinking about where to put COVID patients and then I guess who was going to take care of them, and in my head, I just think of it as like the COVID unit. So I guess... What did that start to look like in the hospital? Yeah, so interestingly, at our hospital, we had a senior behavioral health unit that was really the least medical part of our hospital. And, but it was also probably the least necessary part of our hospital as far as, okay, if we have to divert resources, what can we take away from? So we actually closed that unit 
and our maintenance crew started working on making the rooms in that area negative pressure rooms. I mean, in our hospital, dealing with some airborne diseases, we had maybe six negative pressure rooms out of about 150 beds because we really didn't need any more than that. Well, now we were going to need a, a lot of them. So they started making that transition. They started making, I guess, temporary walls in that area where we could have pre-entry rooms where we could get ready. And, and even in our hospital in that area, because it was the least medical part, they did not have medical gases running to that part of the hospital. So they invested, I'm just guessing, a lot of money putting in lines of oxygen and just air so that we could run ventilators and things like that to support uh, patients. And we had already had a small outbreak at a, lo- at a local town near us, and we had gotten patients from that area. So when we first got patients, we had them in isolation, but not on a unit. And then within about three or four days, we had basically converted space into a COVID unit where we were going to house all of our COVID patients. So why did I choose to ask Dr. Kendrick about these logistical transitions? Because these are the types of things that happened quickly and quietly. Not literally quietly, but not publicly. COVID units weren't a thing until the COVID-19 pandemic occurred. They had to be created and constructed. So patient care was suddenly very unique. It was adapting to new circumstances, traversing uncharted territory, and learning information along the way. Doctors and nurses didn't go to school to learn about COVID-19. It was brand new, and so treatment for it was being invented along the way as well. I find this aspect of the pandemic particularly interesting because it wasn't something that was generally publicized. I witnessed a lot of colleague collaboration which Dr. Kendrick will explain firsthand, as he and my dad often called one another when my grandmother contracted the coronavirus. I'll expand on her story further into the podcast series, but she was the very first COVID patient to be hospitalized in my hometown of Hot Springs, Arkansas. This meant that the hospital was able to devote a lot of attention to her, which was a blessing, but it also meant that there was a lot to learn because her medical team had not yet cared for a COVID patient in such severe condition. My dad, being her son and a physician, was often consulted and had to make a lot of difficult medical decisions on her behalf. Dr. Kendrick and my dad, Dr. Greg Horton, both named Greg, I know, called frequently to discuss what treatments were and were not working in Conway with their COVID patients. They weren't just talking to one another either, but to multiple medical professionals across the country. And the exchange of new information daily, which is still occurring, was and is pretty amazing. You know, the thing about that at first was when COVID was all you were doing, it was it was a little bit difficult because you're doing supportive care and you're doing everything you can to try to get these patients better. Yeah. But in the beginning of the pandemic, especially, we had only bits and pieces of information about what we should be doing. And and so it was it was very difficult. I mean, part of my day when I started uh, as the COVID doctor in late March of 
2020 was trying to figure out, was there any new information that day about what we should be doing? Which is not typically part of my day-to-day care of patients as a hospitalist long-term in the hospital. We have routines and we basically follow uh, guidelines. You know, we, there were no guidelines, so except for what CDC was telling us. So, um, so that was a little bit of a battle. It was a big battle, in fact, uh, trying to figure out what information was useful and what we should be doing. You had mentioned just spending like a decent amount of your days just trying to, you know, figure out if there was new information or the best form of treatment. And I think one thing that I witnessed, you know, really firsthand just between like you and dad is reaching out to colleagues and trying to exchange information about what the best thing to do was and how to treat these patients, especially, you know, down here in more kind of rural areas where. Um, not that, you know, necessarily New York knew what they were doing, but they had, you know, more people working all at the same time. And I feel like when things first started to happen down here, we just had so little experience that people were just trying to, you know, pull from every resource. And so I just remember really vividly. Um, and it's something that like I've told people before and I'm, it's going to make me cry, but I'm just really thankful for you and dad and y'all's I guess, like colleague, friendship and relationship, because I know that he wouldn't have been able to make a lot of those decisions or get through so much of it without people like you. And so going off of that, I guess, um, what did the collaboration between colleagues and doctors and nurses, what did that look like early on as you guys tried to figure out the best form of treatment for the COVID patients? Right. So the communication and and information sharing between doctors at the beginning of the pandemic, I've never seen anything like it before because none of us knew a lot about COVID and and everyone was just so hungry for information and desperate for information about what to do for their patients. So it was constant conversation where usually intermittently you'll you'll talk with a colleague or something, but Every day, I would have multiple text streams going with different doctors who had heard of something, uh, either from somewhere else in the world or from a colleague in a state where they were already in the thick of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there was constant texting. I would get phone calls from people that I didn't usually talk to, but who were just thinking, I have a nugget for you, and maybe this is a lead you can follow. Uh, There were email chains that were set up, and there seemed to be, you know, some people that were central and able to coordinate well, who who basically set up information exchanges uh, early on in the pandemic. So we were very dependent upon those early on, and it really was amazing and helpful. And I remember specifically talking with your dad and us talking through, you know, what are we going to do and, and, and what are details of, of, of care and sharing information with each other. It became difficult when I'm talking to Greg Horton, I know how to trust him and what to take what he's saying, but it, it became very difficult early on even to tell who knew what they were talking about and who was worth listening to. Yeah. And obviously we're still dealing with that issue. Um, you can you can judge that from our vaccination rates and from from different discussions about what all of this means. But um, it it really was amazing. I think it evolved quickly over the first few months of the pandemic because larger academic institutions started putting together protocols. 
and they had the resources and the, the specialists to vet information well and to decide here's what's worth doing, here's the objective information that we have, here's our recommendation. And I remember us using several different protocols from around the country that usually were based out of large academic institutions. Yeah, that is that is just such a crazy, so many moving parts, I feel like, in a very short amount of time. So, okay, yeah. So going off of that then, do you, or did you feel like the hospital and staff were prepared to handle the pandemic at the time? Or did you guys maybe feel prepared at the beginning, but didn't know what was coming? Or I guess, what did, what were your thoughts about all that? So it's, it's a mixed bag. Fortunately for us, we had stockpiled in 95 masks we had thousands of them and i guess in preparation for the previous flu yeah. uh, epidemic that had happened back a few years ago i think we had stockpiled some materials and so we were in a good spot to start with we were not mentally prepared i think for it and so i think everybody had to make some big adjustments and they were just like every other aspect of, of life that, that that you've been living through for the last 18 months too, Hannah. I mean, it was, it was, oh really, we're gonna have to do that. And that was every day we would, we would figure out something new that was along those lines. Some of them were financial, some of them were decisions to stop doing elective surgical cases, or if we were going to do surgical cases that were necessary, were we gonna test the patients? Mm. If we're going to test patients that think they have COVID, are we going to bring them into our hospital to test them? Or are we going to make a drive-through, uh, which had to do with us closing down that West lobby, that, that was a smart decision from the get-go. And then I think just, are we going to isolate nursing staff that takes care of COVID patients and not have them see other patients? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, the logistics of it were, were amazing, but we're still dealing with the effects of our preparation for it. Um, for example, now at the present time, we're in our third surge uh, of COVID and we're almost as busy now as we were at the peak of our surge back in January, February of 2020. Mm -hmm. Or excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm getting my years confused, <laughs> but January, February of 2021, yeah. uh, was when we were at our peak and we, we we thought we were past that. We thought that'll never happen again. And now, uh, although we've had a little bit of rest in between, we're all like, really? We're going to have to do this again. And we're dealing with the same fatigue issues and the emotional strain of it. Um, right. and, and so there there is a lot. When I say we were not mentally prepared, I, I still don't think that we fully understand the emotional strain that yeah. that it has had on us because i mean we've even had to to put together counseling or coping services for for staff taking care of covid patients because there has been so much loss right. um that <laughs> it it gets difficult yeah yeah I think I just want to take a moment then. I might, I might get emotional too. Just thank you guys. No, it's okay. Thank you guys for all that you do and for just being frontline workers. And I think so many people don't realize that um, the emotional toll is still happening. I think people associate it with like those first peaks and not the fact that it's still happening now. Um, 
I, I think that's right. And, and honestly, you know, healthcare providers um, tend to be hard-headed people, mm -hmm. uh, I think, and they tend to be driven people. Yeah. And so if you throw a challenge at them, they basically put their head down and they barrel through yeah. whatever's ahead of them. Yeah. <laughs> and then they deal with it later. Right, right. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I, I feel like that's going to be happening for a long time. Um, and and I, I wonder what that's even going to look like. I mean, I feel like it has probably, it probably has changed lives. And it's probably changed Again, like I think people, I think the public realized it to an extent when when the whole country was at its peak. But now it's like, we are having these surges that maybe aren't as apparent in certain areas of the country. And, you know, specifically right now in more Southern states, like with, you know, lower vaccine rates and everything, like it's just, we are struggling with uh, the Delta variant cases. And it's the same heartbreaking and tragic process over and over and over. I just think people have this kind of like, like these blinders on almost like so now it's they're just not thinking about it especially if they are vaccinated like it's I think that was hard for me even coming back from South Dakota because I was with this group of students and we were all vaccinated and I was with the same bubble of people for five weeks and so I wasn't even thinking about you know how Arkansas was doing until it was time for me to come home and like mom kind of gave me a heads up and just said like hey there, I mean, like cases are spiking again down here. And it took me a couple of days to even realize like, oh my gosh, it's still, you know, like here's our, you know, kind of third surge again. And I didn't even realize it, that it was happening. Um, right. It is amazing. I mean, that happens to me. I mean, because when other parts of the country were dealing with it in pockets, right. I'm like, oh, I'm glad we're doing well here. After Dr. Kendrick filled me in on the hospital transition and everything we just heard, I wanted to hear more about his day-to-day -day schedule. You may have heard him refer to himself as a COVID doctor. Here he explains what exactly goes into being a quote COVID doctor, the patients, the precautions, the workload, and his unexpected temporary living situation. So I, my routine at the hospital each day is we start around seven o'clock in the morning and one of our group of five doctors that is there taking care of of patients each day. We'll make out a list and distribute patients. And at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, we actually just had one doctor assigned as the COVID doctor for the day. And I remember that doctor, that. yeah, that doctor basically, because we didn't know how easily transmissible it was going to be, or is that doctor going to get sick? Yeah. Uh, so we basically just had them taking care of COVID patients. And that, that made it difficult for us to manage our staffing a little bit because some days we only had a few COVID patients and some days we had a few too many. Uh, we ended up having to have at points two or three doctors assigned as COVID doctors uh, each day. Um, but that doctor would basically round on COVID patients, some of them who were just on a nasal cannula and hanging out in a regular room, and some of them who were on the ventilator and as sick as you can get and still be in this world. And, and so my day would look like coming in, getting that list, seeing my patients, which uh, would take me most of the day, and then 
dealing with new admissions that would come in with, with COVID. Um, while I was doing that, in our COVID unit, you, you could not enter the COVID unit without an N95 mask on. So this is a respirator. You know, you've seen people with the, the big mask and we call it a mask, but really it's tight fitting and no air leaks around the edge. Exactly. And it will, it, different ones tie on different ways, but it'll put a sore across the bridge of your nose if you wear it all day for days in a row. And, um, and then goggles uh, had to be worn. And then going into each patient room, we would have to wear a gown, which is usually a disposable gown and have to have it tied on and then gloves and then something on your hair as well. Some, there were different variations on that. We had options of wearing a hood, which was like something that they wore in the uh, orthopedic surgeries. Okay. Uh, it almost looked kind of like a space suit, yeah. um, but we figured out that those fog up really easily. Mm, and yeah. so they, they ended up not being practical, but when you go into a patient's room, you would have to don and doff as you entered and exited the PPE, which was the gown and the gloves and, and all of that stuff each time. The mask we would keep on uh, through the day because we were worried about our supply of those. Yeah. And then I think the most, one of the most overwhelming things, Hannah, was that, you know, the, the visitation to the hospital was completely shut down, right. uh, especially in the beginning. And so families, especially families of COVID patients, had very little access to information. And so you're talking about, you know, a time when the people who are sick need their family members and the people who are family members are worried sick about their loved one and they can't go see them. Yeah. And so we had to set up quickly ways of communication. So the patients that could communicate, uh, we ended up with iPads yeah. and, uh, and they would actually do either FaceTime or some other video calling where those patients could at least have some time talking to their families. And then the harder part was for the patients who were on the ventilator and were not able to talk to their families. I would try to make it a priority each afternoon after I'd seen everybody to call those family members. And usually it was a spouse. Sometimes it was a, a child, uh, usually an adult child that I was calling uh, to update them on what was going on with their loved one. And those were, uh, for one, it, there was a lot of information to exchange and, and it was, it was just extra work that usually, families are around and those conversations just kind of happen through the day without having to set time aside for them. But they were also just very emotional conversations because these patients were in life and death situations and the families, um, you know, they, I, I think the thing that struck me the most is they were so grateful mm -hmm. for any information. Yeah. Um, and they were grateful um, just for somebody, sorry. Somebody trying to help their, their family. Yeah. No, I remember well, so. Um, I know, yeah. I, um, <laughs> I know you remember firsthand uh, um, with Joey and I, um, I just, I just hate it. Um, I do too, um, <laughs> but I also, remember um like you said just being thankful for any information at all and i think um dr kendrick and i took a moment to collect ourselves here 
He tried to apologize for getting emotional, and I told him, no, please don't apologize, because these are the authentic moments that I think people need to hear. Listening to audio of yourself getting emotional is a really vulnerable thing, but I think it's healthy and healing, and I also think those pauses and moments of silence and sniffling sometimes speak volumes more than our words ever could. If you could expand on um, what you did to keep yourself safe, keep your family safe, um, what did all of that look like, especially before getting the vaccine? Yeah, so, so again, new territory for us, but when the pandemic started, I started taking a shower at the hospital and bagging my clothes in a plastic bag tied up before I would come home each day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's funny because even that was a process. I, I would wash my hands after I would put my clothes in the bag because I didn't know if the virus was on my clothing and then it was on my hands. Am I going to transmit it? Um, and then coming home um, to protect my family, I, I basically self-banished to the driveway and we have a, a travel trailer camper. Uh, so I set that up in the driveway and fortunately it was April and the weather was kind of nice. And so I basically lived in the camper for the first few weeks of the pandemic, <laughs> which, which, which worked out fine, but it was, it raised eyebrows in the neighborhood for one. I kept on waiting for the letter from the neighborhood association about when I was going to have to move my camper. Um, <laughs> And then I did not go in my house for, I think, three weeks. It, it may have oh been two, gosh. but but here was our routine. I would come home. I would go in through the gate into the backyard, and we had a back patio. And my wife would come out, and we would sit and talk, and she would have made supper, and, and we would all sit out on the back patio. And I'm, of course, I'm off of the patio sitting in the backyard in the grass, <laughs> and everybody else is around the, the the picnic table that's on the back <laughs> patio. And we actually, we set up uh, a sheet on the wall out there and got a projector camera. And we we actually would watch movies and uh, and watch shows and, and sit around and talk. But I basically hung out in the backyard. I can remember walking around the backyard, having all of these phone conversations that you're talking about uh, with colleagues about what we're doing and what might work. And I, I can remember thinking to myself, I wonder if my neighbors are in their backyard and if they're hearing this conversation, that was definitely a unique time. And uh, I got a lot of inquiries from friends and family about <laughs> what life in the trailer was like. <laughs> oh it has changed my routine. I still shower at, at the hospital every yeah. day before yeah. I leave. Uh, I think that's a good, probably a good routine, but I have been allowed back in the house since, <laughs> since uh, pretty early on. You didn't have to spend uh, winter out there. You did not have to spend winter out there. The hospital actually made accommodations at local hotels for nursing staff that was taking care of COVID patients so that they could stay in a hotel room for, yes. for the duration of their shift yeah. uh, and didn't have to go home to their family because we just didn't know. So it, it really, it did force us into changing our routine at home. Right. right. Yeah. Did you ever, and I'm sure I know the answer to this, but did you ever start to feel a sense of burnout um, in the workplace and what was that like? Yeah, for, for sure. I personally felt a sense of burnout and, and we have a hospitalist group of at that time, 12 physicians. And I would say the majority of us were feeling that. 
and you know, it, it's happening now. Again, part of it also is that there are no local intensive care unit beds in central Arkansas. So we are getting calls right now from from towns in Oklahoma, four hours away, needing an intensive care unit bed for a non-COVID patient who is on the ventilator, but there is no bed available anywhere around them. Yeah. And so it, that is stressful and we don't know what to do because we know we're about to get another ICU patient sometime in the next few hours through our emergency room. And that's our last ICU bed. This was a group discussion last night on teams with our hospitalist group. The, the physician that was on call last night was getting a call, had one ICU bed left. It was from Oklahoma. Do I take this patient, which we want to do the right thing for everybody, no matter where they're from, but we know that our local resources are so strapped that we, we don't know whether we take that patient or whether we wait and we know we're going to have another one here in a couple of hours. So I, I think all of that adds in to, to that strain and burnout for sure. Yeah. Now, I think there's an extra layer on top of it because the vaccine is widely available and 88% of our admissions to Conway Regional since June 1st, uh, which this is the end of July right now, 88% uh, are unvaccinated patients. And I think if you go back further, that percentage is even higher. Mm -hmm. um, and and it that speaks volumes to me that this, at least the severe disease, is mostly preventable. At, at this point, it just seems pretty clear to me that, that the answer for this pandemic is for everyone to get vaccinated. Right. I don't know. I think also it's just, it's tough when, like you said, like the science, it's it's not really debatable much anymore. I mean, it's just out here. And I mean, all of the statistics are pointing to this. And I feel like I've read so many news stories recently about, um, you know, people who have lost loved ones in the past month or so and it's not until they've lost a loved one that now they're like, if only I had had the vaccine or if only we had gotten the vaccine, you know, you don't want people to have to experience something like that to make this decision. And it is heartbreaking. And I completely agree. The reason for me to get vaccinated more than anything else is to protect the other people that I love mm -hmm. um, or even the people that I'm just around. Right. Uh, it is, it is a, I guess, uh, a community duty to me to, to get vaccinated. And I, I like the vaccine. I think the science of it is amazing. I think it is ingenious. I think that it works and I am not worried about it doing anything that COVID itself doesn't do. So, uh, you know, that's the conversation that I have when I do talk to people who are asking, what should I do with this? But it, it does seem to me that 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 is the answer for us. And I will say this too, Hannah. I mean, I, I know people who have been vaccinated who have gotten COVID and yeah. we know that it does not protect you completely from infection, but it is very clear that it protects you from severe disease. And, you know, you're, you're talking about um, duty to, to others in the community. I, you know, young people, I think those that population has probably struggled more with whether to get the vaccine or not. The older population has taken more to it. Uh, right. But we are seeing younger patients in the hospital. And definitely with this third surge and with the Delta variant being in the mix, I've, I've got patients in their 20s that have gone on the ventilator and we didn't see any of that in the first or second round. And I've had people who were in their 30s who were struggling to survive and even people who were 40 who didn't make it. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, I feel like we kind of just answered the last question with that conversation, honestly. I, I mean, my last question was just, you know, how has the vaccine changed the COVID-19 situation at the hospital? I feel like we've really addressed that unless you have like anything else you wanted to add yeah. on that. Well, a, a couple of things. Yeah. Just yesterday, I got word from administration that we were going to require all upper level managers and leadership at our hospital to be vaccinated. Okay. And the vaccine has not been FDA approved. It's an emergency use authorization at this point. And so different organizations have had a different take on whether they should require vaccination. But I think it's a, a bold statement that our hospital is talking about doing that. And I think eventually they will probably expand that out to all employees who have patient care or patient contact duties uh, are going to have to be vaccinated. I, I feel like that's the right thing to do. And I think it's unfortunate that it has to be a mandate. Right. Um, but even in a hospital, there's controversy and different opinions about whether one should be vaccinated. And it seems at this point that there shouldn't have to be a controversy and that and that if we were vaccinated, it would be a game changer. They've also done other interesting things with incentives. One was that they gave a discount at the coffee shop if you were vaccinated at our hospital. Yeah. The, the other thing is, is that they set aside 50 parking spaces that were close to the building. <laughs> And if you are vaccinated, then you are eligible to park in those spaces. Well, there you so, go. <laughs> uh, they're trying to do positive reinforcement as well, but, but it does look like it's coming that it will be required yeah. uh, to be vaccinated to work in our hospital, which is new. I just want to thank you for being here, for being our guest, and just for being like who you are. And, um, I know that our family would have had just a much harder time going through everything that we did with um, Mimi and without you guys. And I know that I speak on behalf of dad too, when he says that it would have just been a much more difficult time for him to make decisions and get through all of that without you. So thank you so much for just everything. And we love you guys, obviously. <laughs> and, thank, yeah. you, thank you. I, I'm so thankful for your family. Uh, I really just one of the best gifts uh, to us, uh, yeah. just just that relationship. So, I'm I'm glad that that uh, that we have that relationship and and that uh, that we can lean on each other for sure. And thank you for having me. This this has been oh, of course. A chance to talk to. I'm I'm so excited to. This brings us to the end of our second episode. Moving forward, we will continue to meet with various professionals to discuss their experiences with the coronavirus pandemic in other regions of the country. Until then, I'm Hannah Horton, and this is Perusing the Pandemic. Music and sound effects for this episode were provided by zapspot.com a free sound effects and royalty-free music sharing site. Thank you to Dr. Greg Kendrick once again for being such an insightful and knowledgeable guest for this episode. I'd also like to give a special thanks to my mentor in the creation of this podcast, Dr. Mark Rideout, as well as the University of Tulsa Honors Program for the opportunity to create this project. <laughs>